Well, throughout his life, Jesus, um, for the most part, kept his identity a secret. You can imagine that it might have been killing him to be able to tell, like, one person out there who he really was. Um, because he, um, he knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Son of God. But he couldn't share that, because if he shared that, he knew that people would begin to think that he was a, a military conqueror. Because that was the popular conception of people's minds, that the Messiah would come and destroy the Romans. And so Jesus didn't want that to begin to happen and misunderstand him. But now we've come to the place in the Gospels where he's actually willing to reveal his identity. Uh, In the past, when people said, you're the Messiah, he would tell them to be quiet. Whether it was someone he healed or whether it was a demon who came out of someone, he would always tell them to be quiet, don't say anything, keep it a secret. It's called the Messianic secret. A lot of scholars talk about that. But now he is ready to reveal himself and his true identity in this passage. This is where he does it, in this public coming out party, uh, this week that he's dreamed of his whole life where he is going to his capital city because he's the son of David. The Messiah is a, a king like David in Jerusalem. It's during Passover. It's the most crowded time of the year. Uh, people say that somewhere between uh, 200,000 and a million people have come into this little city and are there to celebrate the Passover, the greatest Jewish feast. And so Jesus is coming down from Galilee and he's leading Thousands of pilgrims from that region north of Jerusalem, uh, about 90 miles down to um, the temple. That's where he's going to end this pilgrimage. And in this highly charged atmosphere, he pulls this kind of um, publicity spunt. That's one way you could think about it, is this massive, intentionally staged publicity stunt. That's what's going on in this passage. And um, I kind of thought of another time when somebody has introduced themselves and said, I'm, I'm going to um, put myself out there as uh, a ruler, as a great ruler. And what came to my mind was, um, was in uh, 2007, February 10th, uh, on the steps of the old state capitol building in Springfield, Illinois. I don't know if any of you remember what happened there, but Barack Obama, kind of to the surprise of many people, he came out in this very carefully orchestrated event, and he announced that he was going to run for president. And many, many people rejoiced, and he delivered that speech there intentionally where Abraham Lincoln had delivered his famous House Divided speech. And, he, and Obama knew what he was doing, so the very act of doing it there in that way uh, was very symbolic of what was going on. And I think that even more so, Jesus here has carefully contrived this event that will show people exactly who he, who he is. So, for instance, the, the chanting in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David, that means save us, great king. That was something that he had planned. That wasn't just spontaneous. The palm branches, Leviticus twenty three forty, take palm branches and rejoice before the Lord. It was a sign of a, a messianic movement starting. So anyone who was thinking Messiah in their minds, they hear those two things, they're already beginning to think this is about, this guy is saying he's the Messiah. Uh, He chose the week very carefully, the Passover week, the great feast of redemption from Egypt. And all of this was so um, flawlessly executed that this buzz arose in verse 10. The entire city, pilgrims from all over the world, maybe a million people, they were stirred up and they all were telling each other, who is this? Who is this person that is claiming to be the Messiah? And I want to look at three different symbols 
um, that Jesus especially highlights to telegraph exactly what kind of Messiah he's going to be. And number one, you see, is the, uh, the mountain he comes down. Um, didn't know anything about that until I started to read commentaries. But the Mount of Olives is really significant. Uh, number two is his, uh, his destination, which is the temple, and what he does in that temple is highly significant. And then number three is the uh, vehicle that he comes in on, which is a donkey. Those three things. And they all, they all are to tell people, I am not the kind of Messiah that you thought I was. So the, the king of redemption, the Mount of Olives, the king of hospitality, with the temple, and then the king of humility with the donkey. Those three things. So first of all, uh, the Mount of Olives. It's fascinating. When they drew near to Jerusalem, in verse 1, they came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Now, you didn't have to go, in fact, you probably wouldn't have gone to the Mount of Olives. If you're coming down from Jerusalem north, down to, uh, I'm sorry, from Galilee down to Jerusalem, north to south, you go through this valley, beautiful valley, looks like I-81, uh, Shenandoah Valley. It's the, Samaria, the Samaritan Valley uh, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. If you look at it on an image, it's gorgeous. So they come down this beautiful highway, thousands of pilgrims. Behind Jesus, it's like his entourage. They're with him. They know that he's very special. So they're coming down with him. And now at this point, you would come through the northern gate of the city. It's called the Damascus Gate. It's the biggest gate. It's the most elaborate gate. It's where you would expect a conqueror to come in. But instead of going straight down, he turns left. And in this very surprising movement, he goes to the Mount of Olives, uh, which is obviously full of tons of olive trees. It's about... 2,700 feet in altitude. It looks out over the city of Jerusalem. And instead of coming down from the north, now you're coming in uh, east to west. So you're coming in towards the west. And um, the reason he took that uh, strange turn up the Mount of Olives, the reason he was coming down the Mount of Olives, and this is another signal to the whole city, uh, Zechariah 14.4 the Lord will return from the Mount of Olives. So that's actually a a prophecy that he knew about and he was fulfilling. And it goes back to David, when David was rejected. King David, if you go back to 2 Samuel 15.30, now this is again the David that's the father of Jesus, uh, the great, great, great grandfather. Jesus is the son of David, the great king, the greater David. Listen to this from 2 Samuel 15.30. David uh, went up on the Mount of Olives. Uh, This is after he's betrayed by his son. He's rejected by the people. Treason is committed against him. And King David is going out of the city weeping up the Mount of Olives. David went up and wept and covered his head and stood barefoot. And all his friends covered their heads and wept. This is when he was ejected forcibly out of uh, his kingdom, out of his kingship. And his son Absalom took over. So it is a place of of terrible um, treasonous rebellion, the Mount of Olives, as he goes out. But then, as Zechariah said, that's where the Lord's going to return. Down through the Mount of Olives. Now, again, it happens a second time. This time, not with King David, but with King Yahweh. And if you look at Ezekiel eleven twenty three, 23, things got so bad, uh, on the Mount of Olives in particular, that finally God left. Because they were sacrificing children there. That they were worshiping other gods there. Uh, that is this place of, again, rebellion, treason. And so in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, it says, The glory of 
King Yahweh left the temple. It went up from the city and stopped above the mountain to the east of it, the Mount of Olives, before departing. So again, that's the symbolism. He's leaving. God leaves from the Mount of Olives. And then in Ezekiel 43, comes back. Ezekiel 43, 4, the dazzling light of God's glory will come back through the east gate from the Mount of Olives and go into the temple. So that's carefully chosen, coming down the Mount of Olives. It should be called the Mount of Redemption. And the reason he picked it is because he was saying, I am a redeemer. That's the kind of king that I am. I'm not a king that just cleans house and starts all over from scratch. Um, you may have heard of No Child Left Behind, that legislation. Um, people who are in education tend to not like it very much. And uh, one thing they do in No Child Left Behind is if, if a school receives a failing grade, they just completely clean house. Uh, I think they fire all the administration, get rid of all the teachers, and start all over. And uh, for whatever that's worth, I don't know exactly how good it is. It doesn't sound like a great idea to me, but Jesus would not have done that. That's not the way of the Redeemer. He would have gone back into that school. He would refurbish the classrooms, get rid of the mold or whatever is wrong with the building. He would retrain the administration, the support staff. He would meet with the teachers one-on-one. That's the kind of king he is, a king of redemption, of going back into the old and, and, and not just scratching it all, but going back there and redeeming it and making something new out of what is horrible, out of the worst things. And so, for instance, in my life, when uh, Jesus came into my life, took over my life as my king, um, he went right back to a certain relationship that I had that was especially bad, and he said, I want you to work on that. I want, you, I want you to go back to what is most hard in your life. I'm not just going to give you amnesia and kind of zap your mind, give you a lobotomy and start all over. I'm going to go back to where things are painful. And one thing he did is he took me back to my traumatic high school memories. And he said, I, I want you to think hard about what happened there. And I want, I want to muck around a little bit in what happened in the worst places in your past. A lot of times people use their faith to just try to forget about the past, put it behind you. I don't think that's the way Jesus works. He's a, he's a redeeming God. And I had a professor at seminary that was my favorite professor, Dr. James Loder. Uh, he was a counseling professor. And he would, um, he would pray with his clients that he counseled with students if they came to his office. And what he would do is um, he wouldn't really talk to you exactly. He would just start praying for you. He would say, let me have your hand. And he was missing a finger because of a car accident that led him to his conversion. So he he was missing, kind of like Frodo. He was missing a finger, and so he would hold your hand. And then he would just start to kind of talk to you. He was charismatic. And he started to talk to you, kind of like, tell me about your past. And you would go into your story a little bit, and he would just start praying. Like, he he wants to go to the the worst part of your path. So he, uh, he asked me about these things. And then... And then he would say, now I want you to imagine Jesus in that scene. And then he would start talking to Jesus. This is all in prayer. And I'm like, I think about prayer like the Lord's Prayer. Like you say a prayer and you, you kind of move on. But this is like he's talking to me. He's talking to God in the prayer. And he starts to say, like, what would Jesus be doing right now? Uh, what would he say right there in that terrible memory? Um, what, what would his face look like right now? And he just, he took me back. He takes all of his clients back into their worst parts of their past, and he brings Jesus there, the king of redemption. 
And I think some of you need to go through that. I mean, not with him. He died while I was in seminary. But, you know, that kind of thing. You need to go back into your past, maybe, and have some tears shed, perhaps. Because, um, as J.R. Tolkien says, uh, one aspect uh, of the king is that he makes everything sad become untrue. He doesn't just erase the sadness. He goes back into the sadness. Listen to Psalm 56.8. David says uh, to God, you keep track of all of my sorrows. So any rejection, he doesn't say that, but all your rejection. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all of my tears in your bottle. So all the lonely, all the tears of loneliness. You have recorded each one of my sorrows in your book. All sort, every kind of abuse, anything. It's like God is a, a, an account, very careful accountant with your pain and knows it all, records it all, cares about it all. You know, the bottle imagery is there to say that I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to these things. I, you might have forgotten about it, but I don't forget about it. I care more about your pain than you do because I'm a king of redemption. So the next time you're weeping, read Psalm 56 and think about how God cares about all that terrible stuff in the past. And, um, you know, that can't happen unless you cry. There's, not gonna, there's no tears. Like, I don't cry a whole lot, so my bottle wouldn't have to be very big. But really, you should be someone that needs a big old bottle that he can hold all your tears in. So if you don't cry, there's not going to be uh, a bottle to hold your tears. You, you need to do that. We all need to do that. And um, it, spirituality cannot be like um, that song on the Lion King you know, Hakuna Matata, which I think actually the Lion King is making fun of the stuff, but where somebody, maybe Pumbaa or somebody says, uh, no worries for the rest of your days, a problem-free philosophy. That's not at all Christianity. That's not what Christians believe. Or that song, uh, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. I don't know why that came to me. I don't really know what that is talking about. But uh, it's a very famous song. And uh, I want to say that I don't think Jesus would endorse that song. At least not that line of that song. Uh, and then, like, don't worry, be happy. You know, Bobby McFerrin from the 80s. He definitely, that's definitely not at all the king of redemption. So the, the starting symbol that he uses is the Mount of Olives, and that's really important, that he comes down the Mount of Olives. And I think that people would know that he's coming down the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah and Ezekiel would certainly have said he's going to come down the Mount of Olives, and he did. So if that's the starting point, his ending point, you know, if he was on Google Maps, he would have put that cursor down on the temple. He was going to the temple. That was, he was heading there, like a beeline for the temple. That was not like he was wandering around Jerusalem, like a tourist, like, oh, I just got to this cool city. Where should I go next? Oh, there's a temple over there. Let's go see the temple. He was heading to the temple. He knew what he was going to do when he got there. And what he was going to do was very dramatic and shocking and did not help his ratings at all. He was basically signing his death warrant when he did this. In fact, you find out later that that's really the moment where um, the chief priests and scribes said, this cannot happen. This is, this is terrible. And probably Judas, at this point, became very disillusioned with Jesus and therefore decided to betray him. Um, it was not going to help his ratings, but it was going to help communicate a lot about him. So look at verse 12. He drove out all who bought and sold in the temple. They were buying and selling animals to sacrifice. They were exchanging money because if you came from Persia and needed to sacrifice 
in the temple or leave an offering in the temple, you would have to change your coins into the coins of Jerusalem instead of Persia. So it was like a, an exchange, like in, you would find in an airport or something like that. And you had to buy the pigeon to sacrifice. You didn't want to bring the pigeon from Persia. So that's what was going on there. And he didn't like it. So he drove it all out of there. And I have a, a wonderful sister-in-law um, who is now an atheist. She was a Christian when she was in college. Uh, she was very involved in young life when she was in high school. And right while she was moving out of Christianity, I was moving into Christianity. We were like ships passing the night. And we met like at the midpoint at UNCG. We had a conversation at UNCG. And I was asking her all these questions, assuming she was a Christian. And she was telling me answers, assuming I was not a Christian. And one thing we talked about was this passage. And she said, right now, I don't think, you know, I believe in any of this stuff, but I love the story of him cleansing the temple. That's my favorite story. Because you see how prophetic he is and how unafraid of the authorities he is. And especially how prophetic he is about greed and hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy matched with greed. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons in verse 12. And looking back on that conversation, I agree with her about the greed and about money is an issue there. Consumerism is a part of that whole thing. But really, if you look at the quote from Isaiah, it's not so much about greed. It's about prayer. That's what he's really mad about in this passage is about prayer. So look at verse 13. Um, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7 there. And what he's really mad about is that these outsiders have come here to pray. And they are being hindered in their prayers because of all this hubbub of the commerce going on. And um, there's a lot of greed going on. There's a lot of price gouging. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of dishonesty. There's, there's some scales that are not exactly balanced. So they're they're using these pilgrims who are coming in from other countries like Arabia, from Egypt, you know, Jews from all over the world, God-fears from all over the world, who come to Jerusalem to pray in the temple, and he's saying, you are making this into a den of thieves. He's very angry about it. Listen to um, Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the people. Now, that didn't get mentioned in Matthew, but that's the whole point, is that he wants his house to be a place where Everyone can come and pray there. Isaiah goes on to say, I want foreigners and outcasts in my temple. I want foreigners and outcasts. I want them in my holy mountain. I will bring them to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. That was God's desire. It was like this temple that was a huge front porch where he would welcome in everyone. The blind and the lame and the foreigner. He would want them to come where it was like open to all the nations. Radical hospitality in the house of Israel's God. So, you know, Isaiah was imagining a day when these pilgrims would come from other countries and see the glory of the columns and the, the lampstands. Um, just the, the, the temple was like one of the seven wonders of the world back then. It was amazing. Nobody had anything like this temple. And Isaiah imagined these Gentiles coming in and reverently kneeling there in the temple and silently praying and offering sacrifices, receiving atonement and forgiveness. And it was actually a law in the Old Testament that you couldn't even make any sound of a hammer um, 
or a saw in the temple. So if you were going to nail two boards together to build something, you had to do it way outside the temple and bring it into the temple. Because God wanted it to be a place of silence and reverence. So imagine the house in your life where you found the most hospitality. Maybe a grandmother's house, maybe a neighbor's house, maybe an aunt or an uncle. I think about a house where all the neighborhood kids would hang out there. So that you would go there and there would be bikes and scooters in the front yard. Um, you'd go inside and it would be messy. There'd be uh, juice boxes all over the place and there would be um, snacks and peanuts and chips and all sorts of things just lying around and there'd be kids in the back playing different games. There would be spontaneous invitations like, have, just go ahead and have dinner with us tonight. The refrigerator would be opening and closing, that kind of house. That is what God wanted the temple to be like. And in some sense, the, the, the court of the Gentiles where the, the buying and selling was going on was like this huge wraparound front porch where God was saying, I want you to come in to my house. I want you to come here, and I want you to receive my presence. And the priests, the chief priests and the scribes, were inviting people to sell in that court. Not outside the temple, but right there in the court of the Gentiles. They were like, yeah, go ahead. This is just where the Gentiles are supposed to come. Not a big deal. Go ahead and bring your pigeons in there and your coin exchanges and all that stuff. And that's why he said this is a, a den of thieves. And he got mad. Like, there's nowhere else in the gospel where he gets violent. But he actually committed violence here. Uh, this is from John 2.15. Making a whip of cords. I don't know how you do that. But he found a bunch of cords. He tied them together. And he made a whip out of it. He drove them all out of the temple along with sheep and oxen. So it wasn't just pigeons flying everywhere. It was like the bleeding of sheep. Huge cows are just getting pushed out. He's, he's like coming behind them with a whip and just driving them out. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. So he would take one of these big, you know, huge thing of cold, and he'd just pour it out. And he was just flipping tables over. He overturned their tables. And the reason he's so angry is because of the hospitality of God that is being dishonored. And, and, and zeal for his father's house consumed him. And he could not let that happen. And as soon as he cleans the temple out, look what happens in verse 14. The blind and the lame come into the temple where they probably had not been allowed. Or at least had been ignored. And he healed them. Just to show the radical hospitality of God. So that's the mountain of redemption. Uh, the temple, the hospitality of God. And then finally the donkey. Uh, the humility of the king. He tells his disciples, go into the village and you will find a donkey and a colt. I want you to untie them and bring them to me. Um, this was all a setup. It wasn't like the donkey and the colt were just lying around somewhere, chewing on grass, and, he was like, and they were like, go get some donkey over there. He had picked that donkey to fulfill that prophecy and he says in verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. It was, it was a password. The Lord needs them. And that's how they would know that this is the right donkey. So he had set the whole thing up to be somewhat inconspicuous. The donkey was not an accident, in other words. So he wasn't, like, Jesus wasn't tired, like, I've got to get off my feet and find some way in there. It's only a, a mile from the Mount of Olives to the temple. So he didn't need to ride a donkey. He chose to ride a donkey. And it fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This was really strange. This would be like uh, Donald Trump coming into you know, Beijing or something on a scooter. Like, what if he was on a bird scooter or something like that? Just the Queen of England on a moped. Uh, this was very unexpected. A king should come in on a war horse or a chariot or something that's powerful, like Augustus would do. But that's not what Jesus did. Because he didn't come, again, he didn't come to conquer the Roman Empire. He came to conquer human pride and arrogance. You know, the empire of all empires, we talked about last week, lording it over people, dominating people, that kind of pride, the, the, the pyramid, as I called it last week, the pyramid of power, that is what he came to conquer. Arrogance and selfish ambition and a lust for power. Uh, he did not come to build up Israel like this great nation. He loved Israel, but that's not what he came to do. He came to establish a kingdom. And he said, the essence of my kingdom is blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why he rides the donkey. And when he rode that donkey, he was weeping. Uh, as he was coming down the Mount of Olives on that little donkey, step by step, you know, the, the hooves like hitting the pavement, he was, it said he was weeping as he was coming. In Luke 19.41, when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept. And the question is, why is he weeping when... There are people saying to him, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Their children crying out, they're waving palm branches, they're bowing down to him. Why would you be weeping on the day when you're essentially being welcomed as the Messiah? And I think the, the reason he's weeping is he knows that they're going to crucify him. There's another place where he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings. As a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would have nothing of me. You rejected me. I was talking to my, uh, my wife, Margie, about this passage, and she had read about ten commentaries on it. She's a much better Bible scholar than I am. I get a lot of stuff from her in general. Um, and uh, she told me, you know, I've never liked the title, The Triumphal Entry. That's not in the Gospel, but if you look in your Bible, I bet you on the heading it says The Triumphal Entry. And she was like, it's, it's the anti-triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is like the very thing he's saying. It's not triumphal. It is an entry, but it's more like a, something that is a, a lowly entry or a humble entry. And one of the commentaries she read named this section the Donkey King, which I thought, that's a great, that's a great, it's like scratch out in your Bible the triumphal entry and put in there the Donkey King. Uh, because that's actually kind of like an insulting term, the Donkey King. Uh, when I heard that term, she told me this yesterday at breakfast, I was thinking of something came, it triggered something in my mind. It triggered Donkey Kong first, but then it triggered another image, which was a piece of art. And uh, it's, it's one of the greatest uh, treasures of the Christian art world. If you had to teach the history of Christianity in 25 objects, this would be one of those 25 objects. In fact, that's a website. Um, this, is one of, this is the second object. And uh, it's called, uh, in, it's, it's in Italy, so it's called uh, the Graffito Blasphemo. In other words, the blasphemous graffiti. And it was uh, created in AD 200. So 200 years, basically, after these events, this was created. And it's, it's a piece of Roman graffiti, 
probably written by someone who hated Christians and mocked them, um, that knew someone named Alexamenos. And this person who was taunting them drew this kind of childlike drawing in plaster. Go on the internet and type in uh, graffito blasphemo, and you'll see it. It's a, it's a man who is standing with his hands raised in the air in homage to his God. It's clearly a worshiping gesture. And there is a, there's a man on a cross, so it was almost certainly uh, the crucifixion. It's the first depiction of Jesus in all of art. And then on the head of the man being crucified is, guess what? It's a donkey's head. And it says, uh, Alexa Minos worships his God. That's what's written in Greek. Alexa Minos worships his God. And it's kind of embarrassing. And uh, in the same way, I think that whenever we, whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we should be thinking like of that image of a king with a donkey's head. Because it's kind of embarrassing. Like we're, 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 we're drinking uh, this cup and eating this bread as a way of saying we worship a dying, a God who died, a crucified God.